0: This is the InFocus podcast from The Hindu. Hello and welcome to another edition of the InFocus podcast. I'm your host, Jee Sampath. The Union Finance Ministry has come out with a white paper on the changes in the Indian economy in the past 20 years. In this 58-page document, which the government presented in Parliament, it compares the 10 years of UPA rule from 2004 to 2014 with 10 years of NDA rule from 2014 to 2024. This white paper claims that the NDA government in 2014 inherited a quote unquote deeply damaged economy marked by again within quotes governance, economic and fiscal crisis. This white paper further claims that in the past ten years, the India government has "quote unquote" turned around the economy and rebuilt it from the foundations for long-term sustainable growth. And it is uh, interesting that this is the second uh, such major paper or document from the government which makes uh, important claims in the economic domain. Some weeks ago, the Niti Aayog had released a paper claiming that multidimensional poverty in India had declined during the NDA years. We at the Hindu did a podcast on this paper as well, and you'll find a link to that episode in the show notes below. Now, coming to this white paper, some economists have already said that it does not make a comparison of real GDP growth rates or unemployment rates with the UPS 10 years and the NDAs 10 years. That's an interesting point if it is indeed the case because why is that the case and what is the basis of this document and how do we assess the various claims made in it? We discuss all this in great detail in this episode of InFocus and we have with us the economist, Professor Arun Kumar. Professor Kumar, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Uh, Professor Kumar, so uh, the White Paper makes uh, several uh, major allegations in its argument about overall mismanagement of the economy during the 10 years of U.P.A. rule from 2004 to 2014. Now, let me just run through just a few of these uh, allegations or claims. These include double-digit inflation, which, of course, is not a claim, it was a fact, ballooning fiscal deficits due to misguided stimulus in post-2008 recovery phase, borrowing heavily from the market, too many scams, ailing banking sector, which of course is also very much a fact that we know of, abandoning uh, reforms, plummeting capital expenditure and so on. So how valid are these claims, and how do you assess uh, what the paper says with this regard?
1: So as you say, uh, some of the accusations were facts, uh, but I think we need to look at everything in an overall perspective. Uh, if you look at the overall perspective, then we find that the white paper uh, consists of partial truths. The white paper actually should have uh, based itself on, uh, you know, actual data of the economy uh, to clarify the position. Uh, what I find is that the uh, uh, facts selected are very, very selective. They're very uh, specific to certain things. So, like say, double-digit inf- inflation, as you say. Uh, during the UPA two years, there was a high rate of inflation, undoubtedly so. Uh, But in the earlier period, the rate of inflation was not uh, so high. Uh, Then, you know, if we are looking at inflation, then even in the recent uh, NDA phase, we had record high uh, wholesale price index inflation going at about 15% plus and the CPI inflation going at above 7%. Now, when we think about inflation, uh what we need to realize is that inflation means the rate of price increase it doesn't mean that a lower inflation means that prices are now falling Uh, so inflation takes place on the prices that are already raised and inflation matters vis-a-vis the incomes of the people you know if the income rise is the same as the inflation rise then it doesn't really matter you know so much If the incomes are not rising as much as the inflation is rising, then it means people are losing purchasing power. Now, the data that has been given in the budget itself seems to suggest that the wages were hardly rising after you deflate with inflation, whereas they were actually rising more during the earlier period of the UPA regime. So inflation should be uh, seen in relationship to the growth of the incomes of the workers and the growth of incomes of uh, middle classes and so on and so forth. There, the, the trouble that the workers have faced in recent times because of the lack of employment and so on, uh, that is more now than it was during the UPA period. So that's about inflation. We have to put it in the right perspective. Uh, similarly, you know, you mentioned ballooning fiscal deficit uh now it they are saying it's misguided stimulus but you see the deficit is also ballooned during the NDA period because when the (coughs) lockdown and other problems came then they had to provide a stimulus and the stimulus was quite high if you count all the various levels of government then the fiscal deficit rose to above 10 percent uh even in the recent phase the uh, fiscal deficit started rising even earlier even before the lockdown Because they cut corporate tax rates and therefore they lost revenue, and the fiscal deficit was high. So, the fiscal deficit was high in this period because of several reasons, not just the lockdown. Whereas the fiscal deficit was a record low of 3%, which was the FRBM requirement by 2007 8, just before the financial crisis. And then it rose because globally, every country increased uh, its fiscal deficit to provide stimulus so the economy does not fall into a recession. And there was, in fact, fear in the earlier period that it could even go into a depression. The world economy uh, could go into depression. So India boosted the uh, fiscal deficit uh, through a variety of means by which it uh, pumped purchasing power uh, into the hands of uh, people in rural areas and the hands of the poor. So you had various rights that were announced, whether it be the uh, employment guarantee, whether it be the food security, and so on and so forth. So these then helped to pump in demand. And therefore, the rate of growth of the Indian economy uh, did not go negative. It did not go into recession, unlike many of the major uh, world economies. Whereas uh, during the uh, NDA period now, uh, in spite of the rise of the fiscal deficit, Indian economy had the sharpest decline uh, in GDP uh, compared to the G20 nations. So in other words, the fiscal management that was there during the UPA period in the 2009 phase, that was better than what we have seen uh, during the NDA period, where in spite of the fiscal deficit rising, the Indian economy had its sharpest decrease in the GDP. This kind of sharp increase in GDP has not been seen earlier. So what it probably points to is that the fiscal stimulus needed to be higher so the poor people did not lose out as much as they did during the lockdown period. Whereas during the period of the UPA, uh, the fiscal deficit was raised enough So that the economy did not go into a recession, the rate of growth remained positive. So in in other words, the fiscal management was perhaps better then. Uh, You also mentioned about borrowing heavily from the market. Uh, In both periods, we see a heavy increase in borrowings and therefore the debt of the government to GDP ratio uh, that uh, has gone up. Uh, It had gone up then also because you see to cover the deficit, you need to borrow. So since the deficit was created earlier also, uh, the uh, borrowings increased, it came down. And then during the lockdown and the pandemic period, again, the borrowings have gone up. But now the borrowings are going up even post the recovery from the pandemic. So the government's uh, deficit, which had reached about 80% or the central government's deficit uh, had reached about 80% plus. That is only now gradually declining. But it's not very clear that uh, they are not borrowing uh, heavily. It is very clear that they are borrowing heavily. So to argue that uh, earlier the borrowing was heavy and now the borrowing is not so heavy, that argument uh, is not based on what's happening in the economy. The pointers are that there was crony capitalism that was at play and that helped uh, the Adanis to grow rapidly. Uh, the, The main point is that if scams are resulting in black income generation, then uh, if black income generation is curbed, then the direct tax to GDP ratio ri- should rise because the people who are generating black incomes are all high income earners. They pay a higher proportion of uh, their income as taxes. So if the black income generation is curbed uh because the scams are fewer, then the direct tax GDP ratio should have risen. Uh, what we find in the data is that it's been hovering between 5.7% and 6.2%. Whereas if the black income generation had been, uh, you know, uh, checked, then it should have risen to at least t- 10 to 12 percent uh, of GDP uh, or perhaps even more if the figure of black income generation is higher, as, ke- as I keep arguing. Uh, so um, I feel that even though scams are not getting revealed, but there is an element of corruption and of scams that is uh, persisting. Uh, only thing is that the revelations have not come, but day to day revelations are still very high. Every day, every other day, you see that the ED and others are raiding uh, various people, uh, including opposition politicians, and claiming that they have been indulging in corruption and so on. So it's it's going on from what the ED raids and the income tax rates seem to suggest. You also raise the issue of ailing bank sector. Uh, Yes, there there has been cronism in lending. Uh, There's not not the due diligence that should have been there. And that has led to large non-performing assets. Uh, and when uh, Mr. Raghuram Rajan tightened up on the banking sector and the non-performing assets, then it led to a crisis. But it's not that the non-performing assets did not continue to build in the regime uh, after 2014. So, yes, there was a problem earlier. Uh, there was easy access to lo- loans. But there a p- part of that was because the government was trying to build the infrastructure sector. And for the infrastructure sector, the g- government was allowing easy loans to be taken. So partly it was cronyism. Partly it was a policy uh, that allowed easy loans to be taken without due diligence to be done. And especially in the infrastructure sector like power and roads, etc., there was a lot of uh, non-performing assets that got built up because uh, of the push to uh, go for uh, this kind of infrastructure so i i think you know the, when we uh, think of the non performing assets and the performance of the ba- banking sector uh, there is not much to choose between the earlier upa period and now the nda period yes the non performing uh, assets have uh, come down because of the you know bankruptcy uh, okay. code that has come in but there the banks have had to take very heavy cuts Uh, The haircuts have been very high. So in other words, the banks have cleaned up the balance sheet, but by incurring large losses uh, in the banking sector. Uh, You also mentioned, you know, abandoning reforms. I I, I don't fully understand what is it that uh, is meant by abandoning reforms, because in a sense, if we think of disinvestment or we think of land and labor, you know, uh, what was uh, not done during the UPA, I think that persists. That uh, the disinvestment uh, has not been what uh, the uh, NDA had been claiming it would do. Uh, similarly, uh, reforms uh, of the kind pro-capitalist uh, reforms that land and labor that uh, have been talked about, they uh, they have not been able to successfully implement those uh, uh, changes in policy. And I don't agree with the, these kind of changes in the land and labor uh, situation. Uh, but you know, if that's what is meant, that you know. Uh, land uh, relations and labor relations have to be. Altered. I think they mean uh, Professor Kumar. Uh, they mean by
0: reforms uh, by they claim they, they claim that they have done better on reforms, with pointing out that unlike the UPA, they brought in two structural reforms. One is GST, and the other is IBC.
1: Yeah, so i, I was going to come to that. Uh, GST actually uh, is is not a reform. I call it a deform, just like the three uh, bills, the farm bills. Uh, were not reforms but they actually were going to distort the uh, holding pattern of agricultural uh, land uh so GST has damaged the unorganized sector no end and that's where you know the GDP data becomes incorrect because the unorganized sector has been declining as a result of uh, demonetization GST and so on uh, and that is not captured so the GST reform has actually not been a reform but it has actually damaged the economy uh so in other words uh, i don't see what uh, abandoning reforms really implies uh, as far as um, you know uh, the upa versus nda comparison is there uh, you also mentioned plummeting capital expenditures uh, now the the point is that yes in the budget the capital uh, expenditure has not been very high it has been raised in the last 2 to 2 to 3 years but we should look at the overall investment in the economy The overall investment in the economy had peaked in uh, 2008, uh, thereabouts, uh, at about 36%. It fell, then again it rose to about 35, 36% in 2012, 13. And since then it has come down. And the reason it has come down is what needs to be understood that the rate of investment depends on, uh, you know, capacity utilization. And capacity utilization has been rather low. Now, the RBI gives some data on capacity utilization, but that's entirely for the organized sector. It doesn't give data for the unorganized sector capacity utilization. So, even the organized sector capacity utilization data has been hovering between 70 to 75%, and that is the reason why there has been inadequate investment in the economy. The government keeps claiming that the investment will rise because of the structural changes that they're introducing, like they have reduced the corporate tax rate uh now the corporate tax rate has been brought down to the level of southeast asia but that has not led to higher investment by uh people uh, the by, by the investors in india uh, it has not led to uh, more uh greater investment flows from outside to compensate for the uh, you know investment that is taking place within the indian economy so overall investment climate actually has not been very conducive especially in the last 6 7 years And that's why, you see, that's where the crony capitalism comes into play. A large number of ultra-high net worth individuals are leaving the country. The data for 2014 to 2019 was that 23,000 ultra-high net worth individuals left the country. Then in 2019, another 6,000 left. And 2022, another 7,500 people left. And the government itself has been giving data in the parliament that more than 2 lakh Indians have given up Indian citizenship. Now, if ultra-high net worth individuals leave the country, it must be because they don't find the investment climate conducive. And because the government is allowing takeover in a big way, uh, there's always a worry uh, uh, among the ultra-high net worth individuals that they could also be taken over. So, in other words, the capital expenditure, if you think of the budget alone, then yes, the, the capital expenditures may be higher now as compared to what they were earlier. But overall investment climate in the country is the important thing because what is the, uh, uh, you know, investment by the public sector? That's a very small percentage of the total investment in the economy. So we have to look at the overall investment climate in the economy and that has not been particularly helpful. And that's why people are leaving. That's why the rate of investment fell in the economy. So I think when you, when you combine all this, you know, then you find that, you know, there's a much bigger problem that has been faced during the last uh, 10 years, uh, as compared to the earlier 10 years, uh, what you find is that the shocks have been set in the economy by policy. So I call these policy-induced shocks. Whether the earlier shock, whether it be the 2007-2009 global financial crisis or the quantitative easing of 2012-13, both were external shocks beyond the control of the Indian government. So, the, the, the government had dealt with those shocks, I think, better during the UPA period than the, the creation of the shocks by policy uh, during the uh, NDA period.
0: Right. Thank you so much, uh, Professor Kumar. Really appreciate you taking on uh, all these various aspects of the white paper and sort of really explaining it so well. I mean, there is a lot of, as you said, partial truths, uh, selective cherry picking of facts. And it's really a great distinction you made between policy-induced shocks in the later 10-year period of the NDA and external shocks in the earlier period. Now, there are two other uh, points which the White Paper uh, makes. I want you to sort of come in quickly on those. One is that uh, the out-of-pocket health expenditure was uh, rather high uh, during the UPA years and also that the UPA government allocated more funds for consumption rather than productive investment, then if they had done more productive investment, like uh, as the claim goes, the India has been doing, it it would have been a a better outcome for everyone.
1: So again, you know, when we think about uh, health expenditures, you know, um, of course, you know, it's an outlier, this pandemic, but clearly out-of-pocket expenditures are huge during the pandemic. So if we leave that out, uh i think uh the public investment in health uh did not see any comparable difference between the upa years and the nda years so i'm not sure that the uh, out-of-pocket health expenses were greatly different between the nda years minus the pandemic years and the upa years i think the uh, the the total uh, uh expenditure on public health uh, was probably hovering around 1% or thereabouts, both during the NDA period and the UPA uh, period. So whatever else was required had to be uh, out-of-pocket expense. So there I don't see a great difference. But yes, if you include the pandemic years, then uh, certainly during the NDA years, out-of-pocket health expenses are far greater than what they were ever in the Indian economy and certainly more than what they were in the UPA period. Now, when you talk about uh, UPA government allocating more funds for consumption rather than productive investment, uh, you know, that is talking about the budget. That's not talking about the economy as a whole. So if the uh, current expenditures were more during the uh, UPA years than, say, in the last uh, three years, where now the government has increased uh, uh, the capital formation in the budget, the productive investment. But then we have to look at the entire public sector, not just the central government. Uh, And if you look at the entire public sector, that is the center plus the states plus the local bodies plus the uh, public uh, sector enterprises, then certainly the overall investment levels have not been comparable uh, in the NDA period compared to what the UPA period was. Because in the UPA period, the investment rates were much higher than what they have been in the uh, NDA period. So if we look at the economy as a whole, then the investment rate was much higher uh, than during the uh, NDA period. And that's what I think really matters. Uh, What is stimulating uh, growth? Uh, And the stimulus to growth uh, has been different during the UPA years than during the NDA years. Uh, And as I said, when the uh, UPA years, you gave rights. Uh, to people, and uh, you had a Rural Employment Guarantee Scheme, you had the Midday meal Scheme, you had the various other schemes that ca- came in as rights to people. And those gave a higher purchasing power to people at the bottom. And when that happened, that boosted demand That kind of thing has not happened because the disparities are much greater, the share of income of the uh, lower uh, segments of population has been much lower, and therefore the demand is less. And when that mass demand becomes less, then the overall investment rate in the economy comes down because capacity utilization comes down. So I think the comparison should be of the overall picture of investment and not just in the budget what was allotted. Uh, second point is that you see, uh, when the investment rate is higher in the economy, say 36%, then the balance that is there, which goes towards consumption and other, uh, you know, small amount of other this thing, that would be less. So in a sense, the consumption ratio uh, becomes less when the investment ratio in the economy becomes higher. So in that sense, the, NDA period had a higher investment rate and therefore a lower consumption as a share of GDP than uh, in the recent uh, period of the NDA.
0: Right. Thank you so much, Professor Kumar. Uh, that was really, I think, uh, a, a good distinction to make. You know about overall investment rate in the economy, rather than going by just allocations here. And also, uh, one other point which has been uh, discussed in regard to this white paper is that. It does not really compare real GDP growth rates between the two decades, and that the growth rate, if you make that comparison, the growth rate of the economy in the UPA decade was actually one full percentage point higher. Like how do you view uh, this aspect of the debate?
1: See, uh, when the uh, white paper says that uh, you know NDA came and turned around the economy, we must realize that the economy uh, had recovered after 2007 to 2009, and then it declined again. The GDP growth declined again in 2012-13 because of the quantitative easing that took place. But it was already on the road to recovery. So in 2014-15, when this uh, NDA government took over, the rate of growth had recovered to about six and a half, seven percent Uh, and it continued to rise, it rose. uh, So that momentum had been built up for recovery. So it's not as if uh, the turnaround took place entirely because of what the uh, uh, NDA had done in 2014-15. It was the momentum from the earlier period. Uh, The second thing that needs to be noted uh, about the comparison is that when the new base year, 2011-12 was announced in 2015, they did not give us past series. And there was much concern that why the past series has not been given. And I've written a considerable amount on that, and I've shown that actually the reason why the past series was not given was they did not want a comparison between NDA period and the UPA period. Uh, Then when the the, the official committee, they looked at the data, they found that the earlier uh, during the uh, UPA period, the rate of growth was higher, as you say, compared to the NDA period, that was rejected. And then uh, in in a strange way, The NITI was asked to uh, look at the data. This has never happened before. It's always the CSO which looks at the data to say what the GDP series is. And then they came up with a new series. And in the new series, they said that the rate of growth was higher during the NDA period than the UPA period. And the government accepted that. But soon thereafter, it was found that 38% of the companies that were there in the MCA 21 database, which is used to measure the uh, GDP for the uh, organized sector and the industrial sector, 35% of the the companies were not found at the address or were not doing what they were supposed to be doing. So in other words, the database became highly flawed. Uh, The second problem with the GDP database was that during the uh, period 2016-17 onward, One after the uh, other economy uh, was administered shocks, whether demonetization or GST, or it be the NBFC crisis, and then finally the pandemic. Now, when there are shocks, then the earlier methodology of measuring GDP by projecting from the past, that does not remain correct. So you cannot project from a good year into the next year, which is a shock year, and uh, uh, say that the GDP growth was uh, good. So that's why during the demonetization year of 2016-17, government claims that the highest rate of growth of 2010 to 2020 took place where it was above eight percent we all saw that in the month of november december january february and march the economy was hardly functioning the the you know various sectors whether it be trade or manufacturing or so they were all uh, uh, struck by the demonetization it it declined so in other words the data has been uh, manipulated especially the gdp data So, apart from not comparing the real GDP uh, and looking at the nominal GDP, the GDP data itself uh, has been manipulated. The next level of manipulation comes in because the unorganized sector was measured last in 2015-16. After that, it has not been measured. So, it is being assumed that the unorganized sector is growing at the same rate as the organized sector. Now, we know that the unorganized sector got hit very hard by demonetization, by GST, by NBFC crisis, and then the pandemic. So, we are measuring a declining sector by a rising sector. That's why I've been claiming that the rate of growth currently is not 7%, but more like 1% or 2%. Uh, The same holds even for the demonetization year, for the post-GST period, and so on. So, what we are doing is we are not comparing the actual GDP data. This methodologically incorrect GDP is being compared with what was the case in the NDA period. So, therefore, this kind of a white paper should have clarified some of these factors, you know. How is the uh, uh, old method still applicable after a shock? That's one clarification that was needed. Second is that when the unorganized sector data was measured last in 2015-16, how the independent data uh, obtained as far as the uh, unorganized sector is concerned. And why we can still use the uh, data from the organized sector to measure the unorganized sector. So, these three factors should have been clarified in the white paper. That's what a white paper is supposed to stand for, for clarifying the various problems and the doubts that may arise in the public's mind.
0: Right. Serious problems with the GDP uh, database here. Uh, Professor Kumar, thank you for pointing that out. Two quick questions before we uh, wrap up as we're running out of time. How, how do the unemployment rates uh, compare uh, between the two decades? Because this is one aspect the white paper is uh, sort of conspicuously silent on.
1: You know, uh, uh, unfortunately, the government rejects the data which is not uh, favorable to them. And that's why when the labor, uh, the employment data came just before the pandemic, and it showed that, you know, the unemployment rate had risen to a record high of 45 years. It re- rejected that data. But you see, the definitions are different. But if you look at CMIE data, then you find that the labor force participation rate, especially for women, uh, is very low. Uh, it has risen according to the uh, official survey, but uh, the overall uh, employment has not risen, whereas the overall population is rising. So that seems to suggest that large number of people are still out of work. The second problem is that in India, because uh, there is no social security. So if you lose employment, uh, you don't get unemployment dole and you can't just look around for work. So you immediately do something. And when you do something, you get counted as employed. So we found that large number of people don't have a full week of work. Uh, so, according to the definition, even if you have one hour of work during the week, you get counted as employed. But in that one hour per week, you don't, uh, then uh, you're not able to support your family. So, uh, in other words, the unemployment situation is continuously deteriorating because the government is affecting the uh, unorganized sector. So,
0: sorry to interrupt, Professor Kumar. Just to uh, uh, sort of clarify this aspect, are you saying that in today in India, when we measure employment... One hour of work per week is
1: counted as uh, somebody having a job or employed, having an employment, not a job, but you see, large, a large part of the employment in the unorganized sector says self employment. So you go and drive a rickshaw, you do some head load work or you, you know, sell a little bit of vegetables or peanuts at the bus stand and things like that, you know. So you get counted as being employed, right? So we found that uh, a large number of people have less than 36 hours of work. Uh, per week. Large number of people have less than 24 hours of work per week. And uh, recently, when we went to the Chalk uh, in Ranchi, large number of tribals were there and they were saying they're getting only one or two days of work in uh, you know, a week. So in other words, you know, uh, uh, this underemployment is not counted. Uh, whereas India is characterized by large amount of underemployment, disguised unemployment, And people who have left looking for work who are outside the labor force. So, PLFS data is very low in India. The uh, CMI says it's only about 42% or so. The government says it's higher. But even if you take an average of about 45% between them, uh, compared to other uh, large economies like Brazil, China, USA, where it's 65 to 70%, uh, many fewer people in the age group of 15 to 64 are working as compared to those economies. So that seems to suggest that the unemployment rates are high and the government's official data which they rejected showed it was the highest in 45 years. So certainly the unemployment problem is rising. And the reason is because the government is hitting the unorganized sector. It hit the unorganized sector through, uh, 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 you know, demonetization, through GST and so on. So that sector and the unorganized sector consists of uh, 60 million micro units. They're being hit very hard. The small units are there. So medium and small units are 600,000. They're being hit hard also. The medium units less so, the small units more so. And it is in these sectors, the small sector and the micro sector that the problem, that employment generation is high. So if you hit them, then the unemployment rates increase. The other major sector where employment is high is the agriculture sector, where 46% of the uh, workforce works. And there you find that the percentage people depend on agriculture is rising. And that is because people are not finding work in the non-agriculture sector and they're returning to agriculture. They are asking for rural employment guarantee scheme work. They are uh, staying in the farm and uh, are disguised unemployed. So in other words, the unemployment situation is rather complex. We should not simply go by the unemployment uh, data. We should look at underemployment, disguised unemployment and people who have stopped looking for work who are outside the labor force. And that's why the uh, labor force participation rate is is a a better way of looking at it than just looking at the unemployment data given by the government.
0: Right, right. right. Thank you so much, uh, Professor Kumar, for that. I mean, as you rightly said, I mean, the two big sectors which have been a big source of unemployment, the unorganized sector and the agriculture sector, it seems that the government policies have been directly uh, hitting those two sectors badly. So, and I think uh, the problem of unemployment is is more policy driven as well, like you said earlier with regard to the shocks being policy driven. uh, And also, if if the unemployment rate, as you pointed out, is the highest in 45 years today, then definitely it is higher than uh, what it was in the UPA era as well. One uh, last question before we uh, wrap up. We just have a couple of minutes left. So, as someone who has tracked the Indian economy for so many decades, uh, Professor Kumar, so... Very quickly, what are the continuities and what are the breaks do you see uh, between the UPA decade and the NDA decade, broadly speaking?
1: So, you know, broadly speaking, the framework of policies was set in 1991, what we call the new economic policies uh, that have led to a continuous rise in disparities. But now, post-2014, the disparities have risen much more steeply. So, The slope has changed, in, in other words. Uh, in the UPA period, you know, uh, to take that into account, you uh, brought in rights. What uh, you know, the World Bank in the mid-eighties said you need safety nets because you know that the new economic policies uh, are pro-business; they lead to <clears throat> increase in poverty and the lot of the poor would decline. So you need safety nets. So the the uh, the UPA in the two thousand five to two thousand eight period had provided these safety nets you know, various kinds of uh, empowerment. Now, that doesn't solve the problem, but it gives a temporary relief to the uh, people uh, because what to uh, solve the problem, you need to generate incomes, and for that, you need to have work. Now, that problem has got, as we were discussing, much more aggravated during the NDA period, uh, and also because the investment rate has declined. When the investment rate declines, then the problems uh, become worse. And, uh, it's, it's the steepness of the slopes or the decrease in the uh, slope that matters, you know. So disparities are rising much faster. Uh, the pro-business framework that has been adopted post-2014, which is leading to a rise in, uh, you know, the disparities, that is uh, much greater during this period. Uh, what the UPA went was for rights, uh, because it was uh, felt, that people are slipping below, uh, you know, the poverty line or, or so on. And therefore, you know, they needed support. Uh, so you gave various rights like rural employment uh, guarantee scheme, mid-day meal scheme, you know, education uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, and that helped uh, people uh, go across the poverty line. Uh, now what is happening is that uh, the support to the poor uh, is coming But as I've been arguing, because of the demonetization and the various other shocks to the economy, the poor people have been losing roughly 10 to 12 lakh crores of output every year, whereas what they're getting in response from the government is only four or five lakh crores now, and earlier three lakh crores or so. So in the last seven, eight years since the demonetization, while the unorganized sectors lost some like 80 lakh crores, what they've got is more like 25,000 crores so in other words it's unable to compensate for the decline that has taken place and that's why capacity utilization remains low that's why the investment rate in the economy fell all that sort of ties in uh, so the marginalization of the unorganized sector is far greater during the nda period as compared to the earlier period the upa period where also the disparities were increasing but not at the rate at which uh, they are doing now uh, so those are the kind of continuities, but I think the discontinuity that is important is the, the play around with data. Uh So uh, earlier, this playing around with data was much less than what it is now. So all these various data points, whether it be consumption survey, whether it be an uh, employment survey, whether it be your GDP, uh, all those, you know, now the government is playing around with data far more than what was being done earlier. So these are some of the continues and the discontinuities that I see uh, between the two periods.
0: Right. Thank you so much, uh, Professor Kumar. I think uh, you you sort of answered this question really well I mean, in terms of continuities. Of course, there has been the same uh, broad framework of economic policy making, which as you said uh, was was sort of framed in the 1991 economic reforms, the so-called new economic policy, uh, which is a business, big business facing. And as a result, there has been a rising disparity between uh, the, the richer and the poorer classes. And during the UPA years, there was an attempt to sort of attenuate this disparity through safety nets, uh, which came in the form of rights-based uh, legislations. But the disparity has uh, been becoming steeper and starker during the India years, uh, also to do with the, the big hit on the inorgan, unorganized sector and dilution of the safety nets. And in terms of discontinuities of breaks, as you pointed out, there has been a tremendous amount of playing around or manipulating or cherry picking with data and databases. And that has sort of made it very difficult rather for uh, independent analysts and economists to make sense of what is going on. Thank you so much uh, once again for joining us uh, in, in focus and sharing your observations and insights. Professor Kumar, pleasure talking to you.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you.